0: Please take your Bibles and turn to the book of Mark as we continue our study. Last week we began this study and just took the first few verses and we um, saw how Mark began his account of the life and ministry of Jesus Christ by showing us that the gospel is good news. It's good news about a person and that person, of course, is Jesus Christ. Christ, who was prophesied in the Old Testament, he was proclaimed by John the Baptist, who was the herald or the forerunner of Christ, just as the Old Testament had prophesied about him as well this evening we 're going to look at verses nine through thirteen of chapter one, and we 're going to look at at two very significant events in the life of Christ that Mark deals with very um, quickly, but yet they are significant and We want to see how Mark's rapid pace account of these events serves to show that Christ's ministry was approved by God and was completely victorious over Satan. His baptism, Christ's baptism, shows how his life and ministry were affirmed by the Father. And his victorious account with Satan in the wilderness shows how his ministry was empowered by the Spirit. His life and ministry was father-approved, spirit-empowered, and victorious from start to finish. And as we see this, we should be encouraged to walk in the power and the victory that Christ has provided through his perfect life and sacrificial death and resurrection. So let us pray as we approach God's word and ask his blessing upon it. Let us pray. Gracious God, we come to you with grateful hearts for your word. May it be quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword. May it pierce even to that part of our soul that needs, needs cut out, that needs excise. Lord, that, that we might live pure before you. Lord, we ask that it would be effective in what you have set for it to accomplish tonight. May the words of our mouth and the meditation of our hearts be acceptable in thy sight, O oh God, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Mark 1, 9 through 13. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee... ...and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water... ...immediately he saw the heavens being torn open... ...and and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, "...you are my beloved Son, with you I am well pleased." And the Spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness... And he was in the wilderness forty days, being tempted by Satan. And he was with the wild animals, and the angels were ministering to him. Amen. And we praise God that he has spoken to us this evening in his holy and inerrant word. Now, as you are well aware, in our nation, every four years, we elect or re-elect a president. If I wanted to quiz some of you high schoolers... I might ask you how the Electoral College works and how the the president is actually installed. But we're not going to go there tonight. But what I want to draw attention to is the fact that our president is inaugurated. And that is the official start of our president's term. It is not until that individual is sworn in that they are officially the president of the United States. From that day till the end of his or her, if we ever get to that point, prescribed term, that is what marks the presidency. So, and after that excitement or frustration of the inauguration, depending on whether your candidate won or not, with its expensive and often overdone festivities, the press soon starts to talk about how successful that president is going to be... ...and they start marking the days in that president's administration... ...to see if they are effective in what they have set out to accomplish. In our text this evening, we see the inauguration of Christ's ministry... ...the official start of his ministry in his baptism. He is, in a sense, sworn in. And he is giving the, given the blessing of his father... He is anointed with the Spirit and his ministry begins. And then we see John just immediately turns to the temptation and says, literally, that he was immediately driven by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. This temptation account serves to show us his victory over Satan. So we see these two different yet very significant events in our text... And it's interesting to consider the brevity of, of the verses on which um, that Mark deals with these. <clears throat> Why would Mark give such a bare-bones account of these significant events? I think there's some distinctives in how Mark portrays these that we need to notice, though, from our text. They help us to see Jesus more fully and better appreciate his life and ministry... I've taken these verses together because they are so brief, but also because they serve to mark the beginning of Christ's ministry. And we want to look at these verses under two headings. One, the well-pleasing Son, and secondly, the victorious Savior. We see in his account of the baptism that really he focuses more on the events that came about after the baptism than on the baptism itself. He just simply states the fact that he was baptized by John in the Jordan. But then we see three things that happen following his baptism. John, who baptized Christ, remember, had shown the ultimate humility towards Christ. He said he wasn't even worthy to remove his shoes... He wasn't even going to able to fulfill even the lowliest task in relation to Christ. He said, Matthew records, he's, him saying what hopefully most of us would say is that, Jesus, I need to be baptized by you. And do you come to me? Jesus replies that it is proper to fulfill all righteousness, which likely means that to fulfill prophecy. He, he is, in a sense, saying this is how it should be that I be baptized by you. Jesus took his place among the hundreds... ...or probably even the thousands of people... ...that had come out of Judea... ...into the wilderness to where John was preaching... ...and where John was baptizing. And Jesus took his place with those sinners... ...and stood with them. This is the first instance in the book of Mark... ...of Christ identifying with sinners. Here he takes his place alongside sinful man... Here he stands with sinners in the waters of Jordan... ...and he gives us a glimpse in his actions... ...as to who he is and why he came. He came to take on our sin. He came to identify with sinful men... ...and to die in their place. Another reason, I think, is that he identified his ministry... ...with the ministry of John the Baptist. John the Baptist preached repentance unto salvation... And Jesus preached repentance unto salvation. He identified his message with that of John. And to the one who clearly heralded his coming. Just like the Old Testament said. But like we said, our text doesn't really focus so much on the baptism itself. But on the three things that took place following the act of baptism. It says that the heavens were torn open. Interesting phrase there. The heavens were torn open. The Spirit descended like a dove, and there was a voice heard from heaven. The first thing that Mark says is that the heavens were torn open. I love such a vivid description here, And, and you think, why did Mark choose those words where Matthew and Luke say simply that the heavens were open? There's a couple of other texts that might help us understand this better. One is in Isaiah 64 1 where the prophet cries out to God saying, Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down. Here the prophet is crying out for mercy in a time of exile, in a time of trouble. And he says, starting with the end of chapter 63, he says, Our adversaries have trampled down your sanctuary. We have become like those over whom you have never ruled, like those who are not called by your name. Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down, that the mountains might quake at your presence, as when fire kindles brushwood and the fire causes water to boil, to make your name known to your adversaries, and that the nations might tremble at your presence. When you did awesome things that we did not look for, you came down, the mountains quaked at your presence." Here the people of God are remembering a former time of God's presence... ...when they felt it, when they could see it. Maybe they were thinking of Sinai... ...when the mountain quaked, when it was shrouded in darkness and smoke... ...and they knew that God's presence was among them. Isaiah is looking to the sky as, as though it was a curtain and saying... ...Lord, tear the curtains of the heavens and come down... That we might see you and feel you and know you. What is Mark saying here? He's saying that Yahweh has come. Yahweh has answered Isaiah's prayer. He has torn the heavens and Yahweh has come. The Lord is showing up. The heavens are being rent. And Christ's ministry is beginning. God in his mercy is sending his son to be the sacrifice for sin. To redeem his people. Interestingly, this word... ...that in the original is used in in this verse to tear the heavens open... ...is also used towards the end of Mark in chapter 15. And there we see at the crucifixion... ...it says in chapter 15, 38... ...that the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. We know how significant that was... ...in understanding that now we have access into the very presence of God... ...because of the work of Christ... And Mark seems to be taking these two events and connecting them like bookends on Christ's ministry to say, the heavens have been torn and the temple, the veil of the temple has been torn. Here in chapter 1, we see the beginning of the work that Christ completed through his death and resurrection. Secondly, we see that following the baptism of Christ, the spirit descended like a dove. It reminds us of the dove that Noah released from the ark... ...in the days and weeks following the flood. And and first the dove was released and then it came back. And then it came back with an olive branch... ...which symbolized the new life that was coming. The new life that was being restored. Certainly Christ is a symbol of God's new creation... ...fulfilled in Christ Jesus. More importantly though what we need to see is that Christ's ministry was Spirit-empowered and Spirit-filled. The final event that occurred following Christ's baptism was the voice from heaven, the voice of God Himself speaking, giving His approval, and showing His great pleasure in His Son, Jesus Christ. And the words here are full of Old Testament references. The words, You are my Son, are carried forward from Psalm 2, verse 7. This is an enthronement psalm celebrating the the reign of God's chosen king. Despite the enemies of God who threaten and conspire against him, God replies in Psalm 2, "...he who sits in the heaven laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, as for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell you of the decree." The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. God is saying he will establish his kingdom through his chosen king. The word beloved takes us back to Genesis 22. Where Abraham is commanded by God to take your son. Your only son Isaac whom you love. And go to the land of Moriah. And offer him there as a burnt offering. On one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. Oh, Of course we know that Abraham is in is obedient even to the point of nearly killing his son until the angel of the Lord stayed his hand and pointed that there was a sacrifice provided. God provided a ram as a sacrifice foreshadowing the the ultimate sacrifice that is fulfilled in Jesus Christ, the beloved Son of God. And lastly, the phrase in these words that came from heaven... ...which says, with you I am well pleased, is a reference back to Isaiah 42... ...which is the first of the servant songs in the book of Isaiah. And if you read through, starting in Isaiah 42 and through several chapters following... ...we see the development of the idea of the servant of the Lord. We see in 52 and 53 how that servant will suffer. And he is one that represents the people... ...and is a sense, an embodiment of the people. He continues this development and shows how he will suffer. The words that come from heaven mark Jesus as the servant of the Lord... ...who brings delight to the Father. Now, scriptures and our creeds tell us that Jesus is God and Jesus is human... 2 distinct natures in one person forever. However, as a man, Jesus had to grow in his understanding and knowledge of things... Um, The book of Luke, Luke tells us that Jesus grew in understanding and in favor with God and man. And I think this even including his understanding of his mission and his purpose and why he came. And understanding his Father's will. The events at the baptism are pivotal in the life of Christ to reveal who he was to himself as well as to the world. He was empowered by the Holy Spirit. He saw the symbol of the dove, and he heard the voice of his Father from heaven giving his approval to him, speaking in the languages of the Scriptures that Jesus knew and loved, showing him who he was. The Father in heaven spoke. He called him his Son. He told him he was well pleased for him. What an affirmation that was for Christ. And what an affirmation it is for us, not for us personally, but for us to understand the ministry of Christ and who he is. It affirms to us that Christ was all that the Old Testament said he would be. He was everything God promised he would be. Christ perfectly fulfilled the law. He was a delight to his father. He was not just a mere man who lived a good life that serves as an example for us. He was... God's Son, He is God's Son, and the only one who could bear the penalty for your sins and mine. Scripture and our creeds also tell us that God exists in three persons, and we see this beautifully illustrated here at the baptism of Christ. All the members of the Trinity are present there. Jesus is there in human form, identifying with sinners in His baptism. The Spirit is there anointing and empowering Jesus for the work that He is to do. God the Father is, of course, present there speaking in a voice. Officially proclaiming that Christ is His well-pleasing Son. The appearance of all members of the Trinity should help us to see the significance of this event in the life of Christ. It officially inaugurated Christ's ministry. Mark's account shows us more of who Jesus is. That He is the sinless Son of God. ...the servant of the Lord, the beloved Son of God that has appeared on the scene. His arrival was marked by the tearing open of the heavens... ...showing God's great mercy and answering Isaiah's prayer from many years ago. God has come. God has spoken. God's mercy is revealed in His Son, Jesus Christ. Secondly, and perhaps more briefly, we want to consider the victorious Savior... Immediately following this description of the baptism, it says that the Spirit drove him into the wilderness. We know from verse 4 that, that they were already in the wilderness, but evidently they were, he was, Christ was driven deeper into the wilderness, into a more desolate place. Again, Mark chooses to emphasize other aspects of the baptism or of the temptation when compared with other accounts. <clears throat> Both of the Gospels of Mark and Luke record three separate attacks from the devil. And in each of them, the devil tempts Jesus to act independently of his Father's will. And in each of them, Christ meets those temptations with Scripture. He replies to Satan with the word of God. Now, we want to notice in our text here that in verse 12, "...the Spirit immediately drove him out." ...into the wilderness. Now when you and I think of the Holy Spirit... ...we think of the Comforter... ...which Jesus promised that the Comforter would come. The Spirit who guides and leads and empowers. But the Spirit that drives us... ...or drove Jesus into the wilderness... ...sometimes the Spirit places us in places... ...that we don't want to be. And and it's not as though Jesus was impelled against His will. I think what Mark is saying that that Christ's ministry was Spirit-empowered and Spirit-led. And because of the Spirit working in the Lord Jesus, He was led and propelled into this moment of temptation. And Mark shows us really two sides of the conflict. Of course, there, it's, it's Satan against Christ. But we also see the, the Spirit and the angels ministering ...to Christ, and we see the devil and the wild animals on the other side. And both of these verses, only two verses, deal with the temptation of Christ... ...and both of these talk about him being in the wilderness. And in in the book of, of Matthew and Luke, we read of Christ's response... ...and him replying in the words of Scripture. And the Scriptures that he used were from Deuteronomy. And in the passage in Deuteronomy... ...Moses is recounting the wilderness wanderings. What happened in the wilderness? In the wilderness, the people of God failed. In the wilderness, they wandered for 40 years because of their disobedience. What happened when Jesus was in the wilderness for not 40 years, but 40 days? He succeeded in the test and the trial that was before him. He perfectly obeyed his father's will. Jesus succeeded where Israel failed... And the temptation was fierce, it was intense, it was, he was no doubt tempted daily, all day, every day, for 40 days. He was alone, and he was surrounded by wild and threatening animals. 1 Corinthians tells us that Jesus was the second Adam. Christ came to redeem us from the effects of the fall brought on by our father Adam... As Sinclair Ferguson said, if he was to reverse what Adam had done... ...he needed to enter into the world, not as Adam found it, but as Adam had left it. And here he certainly is, enduring every temptation of the fallen world. Adam, When Adam was tempted, he was in the garden. When Jesus was tempted, he was in a wilderness. Adam was surrounded by animals over which he had dominion and even named... Jesus was surrounded by wild, threatening animals, which only intensified his temptation. Mark doesn't actually, explicitly tell us of Christ's victory in this hour of temptation. But we know he was victorious from reading the other accounts. And we know he was victorious by continuing our study, which we will continue to look at as we go through this. And we see Christ's authority here is initially established over ...the forces of evil... ...and it's demonstrated in chapters that are to come. We see that this event was a first blow to Satan. Christ already had authority over the forces of Satan. Then we see the final death blow... ...being dealt to Satan on the cross. Christ is our high priest. He has endured temptation and emerged victorious. Hebrews 4 tells us... ...since then we have a great high priest... ...who has passed through the heavens... Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Christ's temptation serves more than just a simple example to us. It shows us who Jesus is, that he is the victorious son of God. He is the spirit-empowered Messiah who came to bring salvation and conquer all his and our enemies. Christ came into this fallen world, endured the intense tempting brought by the devil and his forces. He came into that world to stand with and in the place of sinners so that we could be made right with God. And the same Holy Spirit that empowered the ministry of Christ... ...now unites His people to Himself through faith. Christ's victory can be our victory. Not just as an example, but because we are in Him... ...we are united to Christ. So tonight I say to you, look to Christ. He is the victor. Amen. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank You for the temptation that You faced... That you are victorious and that we will see in final judgment the day of final victory that is just foreshadowed in the passage that we have just considered. Lord, we pray that you would grant us grace to live by the power of the Holy Spirit who empowered our Lord Jesus and now resides in us and unites us to Christ. Lord, we pray and ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.